pray. If you can kneel and join us that way, that's great. If not, just have a seat, whatever's comfortable for you. Our Father, we come tonight to study your word um, in that longest of the Psalms, Psalm 119. The psalmist uh, has just that brief little line. He says, the sum of thy word is truth. When we add it all up, all those books, all 66 of them, Old Testament, New Testament, we add them all up, we add up all the verses, we add up all the content, the sum of thy word is truth. That is why we are here tonight. We live in a culture that lies. We live in a culture that deceives. We live in a time where those in the highest positions of power do all that they can do to distort the truth. They are high, but you are most high. And we thank you that you are the God who cannot lie. If we think about that, the scripture does not say that you don't lie. It says you cannot lie. You absolutely can't do it. Because of your nature, because of your holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's absolute moral purity. Therefore, you cannot lie. So therefore, the sum of your word is truth. You've never lied to us. You've never misled us. We can bank our lives on what you say. And that is the essence of faith. The essence of faith is simply believing what you have said and that you will perform it at the right time. And you are watching over your word to perform it. Sometimes, our Father, we read promises in the Scripture, and we, of course, because of our circumstances, would hope that those promises and those prayers that we pray, based on the promises, we would get an answer immediately. But that doesn't always happen. Just because you delay a promise, an answer to a prayer... It doesn't mean you've denied it. That's why we read so often in the scriptures, we read the word wait. You want us to trust you that you will perform your promise. You also want us to wait on you for your timing, not ours. We've all got our time schedules. We all have our pressures and we know when we would like you to come through for us, but we actually know very, very little. You know what's best. We don't. So we trust you not only to fulfill your promise, but to fulfill it at the right time. And we would not dictate to you our timing. Quite frankly, we have no clue what we're talking about. If we would attempt to prescribe to you how you should answer our prayers. We are finite, you are infinite. We are children, you are the Father. 
So tonight, as we come, we thank you that you are a Father who speaks truth, that doesn't lie, that doesn't give us half-truth. You tell us the truth. But you are a God who is wise, and you are a God who is good, and you have our best interest in mind. And you are willing for us to go through disappointment in order to give us your favor at the right time. So enable us to trust you, not to get mad at you, not to get angry, but to trust you and to submit to you. Help us with that tonight. We wait on you. David said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be strong. Put your heart, take courage. Wait on the Lord. We do that in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study uh, that we're calling Act Like Men. We're pulling this out of the phrase that is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, where you've got those four bullet points. And one of them is Act Like Men. And we have continued to hammer this that uh, the reason we're doing this study is we have gotten so far away from God's truth and from God's revelation and from the North Star of God's Word, the further you get away from God, the more trouble you're going to find yourself in. It was G.K. Chesterton about, oh, a hundred or so years ago, the, the great thinker. Chesterton was such a great thinker and such a great debater, and he took on the, uh, the philosophical tenets of his day. He was, he was just full of common sense. Uh, he had trouble getting through life because his mind was always working. His mind was always thinking. I think I've mentioned to you the story that he found himself one day at Victoria Station in London. And uh, he couldn't figure out why he was there. He had no idea why he was there. I mean, this guy was the, he was the classic absent-minded professor. He was brilliant. But he had trouble getting through life. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have anything. You know. And he's at Victoria Station. And he cannot for the life of him remember why he's at Victoria Station. So he uh, goes over and uh, sends a telegram to his wife. And he's got to wait for a while for her to get it and reply. And he said, at Victoria Station. And then he said, why? And within the hour, he got a response. Uh, come home. Here's a guy that was so brilliant, taking on the philosophical uh, geniuses of his day, but he had trouble living life. I, I, that helps me. Not that I'm a philosophical genius. <laughs> but if you have trouble just getting through the stuff of life, if you have trouble with details, I always appreciate G.K. Chesterton. But the guy had so much wisdom. Chesterton said this, When people turn from God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Now, that's a brilliant statement. And that's precisely where we are in this culture. We have turned from God. We've turned from him quite a while ago. And, and the thing is, when you turn from God, when you don't believe in God and you don't believe in his word, it's not that you don't believe in nothing. 
You believe in anything. You're a sucker for anything. Is that not where we are? Do you not look around and just marvel and shake your head at the nonsense? Who was it that said? Can't remember the, who, who said it. <clears throat> but the phrase was this. He is the most respectable man I have ever seen talking pure nonsense. <laughs> Guy looks respectable. Looks like he's got his life together. But what comes out of his mouth is sheer, unadulterated nonsense. That's kind of where we are on every front. So when you turn away from God, it's not that you, no, you don't believe in nothing. You believe in anything. So we have gotten so far away. If, if, uh, if you don't sign off that marriage can be be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, you're out of step. There's something really, really wrong with you and there will be repercussions on you. Is that not true? And I could go on and on and on and on. There's no, you, you guys know, you see this every day. This is why we're doing the study, Act Like Men, because one of the things that's happened to us is we've lost manhood. We've lost the idea of what it means to be a man. Now, there are some of us who are old enough to have grown up in a time where you still had men. And we still have men. There's always a remnant. There's always godly men. God always has his men. Elijah, you know, at a certain point, was so discouraged and in such despair, he was a man. He had stood up to Ahab and Jezebel, uh, the satanic representatives of their day. Uh, the people with great power, the people with great authority, the people in the palace, the people who had all the, you know, wrote all the checks and confirmed, you know, uh, ran the treasury and, you know, taxed and everything. You know, nothing's changed. Because Satan is the god of this world. Is he not? Okay. Um, so they're up against it. You know, he's up against it and he's fighting them and he's declaring the word of God. And he got so discouraged... At one point, he felt he was, he was the only one left that was following the Lord. And the Lord said to him, I've got 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God always has his men. But sometimes we get discouraged and it looks like they're not around, but they're around. Um, Paul could say to the church of Corinth, act like men, as messed up as they were, they knew what he was talking about. But we've got a lot of confusion today, and I'm just going over turf. We've already gone over as I catch my microphone between the two stands and almost choke to death. <laughs> I got out of that very calmly, I thought. But David was going to have to do the Heimlich maneuver on me. That little crisis just passed. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion uh, over the last week about the Titanic because of the anniversary of that... Uh, horrific event that really didn't need to happen. The more you read about the Titanic, the more fascinating it is. Because they had the warnings and the warnings and the warnings and the warnings. They didn't listen. There's a whole lot of sermons in that right there. I came across a story this week on the about the Titanic I'd never heard before. Urban um, Lutzer is a pastor of uh, the Moody Church in Chicago. Anything Irwin writes 
uh, I make sure I try to read it. As soon as I see it, I read it. He's a great biblical preacher and scholar. But recently, Erwin um, went over to uh, the Harper Memorial Baptist Church in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, for the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. Uh, this church has not always been known as Harper Memorial Baptist Church. It used to be known as Paisley Road Baptist Church. But Pastor John Harper served as its pastor from the church's founding in 1897 until his passing. In 1922, the church moved into a new building and was renamed the Harper Memorial Baptist Church. Why? Well, because he was an excellent pastor, but also because he knew how to act like a man. Let me read to you the rest of the article. I'm just going to quote it directly. This past weekend, many events throughout the world remembered the sinking of the Titanic in the North Atlantic on April 15, 1912. Among the 1,500 who died that night was Pastor John Harper. Pastor Harper, a Baptist minister, was coming to Chicago to preach for several months at the historic Moody Church. A 39-year-old widower, he was traveling with his six-year-old daughter, Annie, and his niece, Jessie, both of whom survived the sinking. He had previously preached at Moody Church in the months of November and December, and uh, they had asked him to come back and do a series of meetings. Uh, He was on the Titanic when they hit the iceberg. He made sure that these two little girls were placed on the lifeboat. Why did he make sure of that? Well, because when you act like a man, you protect women and children. There used to be a phrase, women and children first. So we live in a day where recently you've got a cruise ship, a big massive ocean liner, and you've got a captain who's trying to impress some chick he's met on the cruise. And you know the story, and he makes some kind of maneuver, and the ship goes over. And one of the first guys off the ship is the captain. It's just sort of a uh, metaphor for our times. John Harper didn't do that. Um, As the Titanic was sinking, Pastor Harper was heard shouting, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. (laughs) Is that not good? I'd never heard of this guy before. (laughs) Women, children, and the unsaved. See, back then, he could say the unsaved, and they knew what he was talking about. Today, if you said that, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. If they did, they would take it as a personal affront. Women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboat. As the Titanic began to break in two, many persons jumped into the icy water, including Pastor Harper. Before... The hypothermia became fatal. Pastor Harper swam frantically to people, pleading with them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could be saved, as Acts 16.31 indicates. Pastor Harper swam to one young man and asked him, are you saved? The young man replied that he was not. Pastor Harper tried to lead the young man to Jesus Christ. Picture this. This guy's in, in the Atlantic, freezing to death. And he's trying to lead this young man to Christ before he dies. The young man was in near shock and couldn't really respond. Pastor Harper then took off his life jacket, threw it to the young man, saying, Here, you need this more than I do. 
He then swam to other people, but several minutes later, Reverend Harper returned to the young man and succeeded in leading him to Christ's salvation. Of the more than 1,500 persons who went into the icy water that night, only six were rescued by lifeboats. One of them was this young man who was floating on debris. Four years later, a Titanic survivors meeting, at a Titanic survivors meeting, this young man stood up and in tears told how Pastor Harper had led him to Christ. He further told how Pastor Harper tried to help others, but because of the intense cold, he eventually grew too weak to swim. His last words before he sank beneath the waves were, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Act like men. Uh, When you look at the scriptures, you see a model of what manhood should be. Um, Several things come to mind. Um, When you act like a man, you protect women and children. You see that in the scriptures. Uh, We live in a day and age where that's laughed at. But Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus got pummeled for the church. Jesus took the blows for the church. Jesus, by giving up his life, protected the elect so that they would be saved. He who knew no sin became sin. John Owen wrote a book with the great title, Uh, about the work of Christ, it it was called the death of death in the death of Christ. By dying, Jesus killed death so that we could be liberated from death and be given eternal life. Jesus, if you know Christ, you've been protected by Christ because because you believed in him. But he gave himself up. He protected you. Husbands, love your wives. Do you have a wife? Husbands, love your wives. How am I to love her? Just as Christ loves the church. That's your job. That's my job. That's it. See, I, I, I don't see that in the movies. You're right, you don't. But that's how Christian men act. Act like men. Um. Uh, Pastor John Harper had two little girls under his care. What did he do? He made sure they were protected in the lifeboats. See? Men provide. Is it 1 Timothy 5.18? If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. If you're physically able to work, you work. You say, well, I'm hitting 65 this year. Good. Good for you. So what are you going to do? Check out? Now, you might do something different than what you've been doing. Well, good. But you don't stop being productive, do you? You work. You work. Men are supposed to work. You're supposed to provide. That's our job. And, and when you work, and when you work hard, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. When a man works, and when you work hard, you get fatigued and you get tired, but you also have a sense of uh, dignity because that's what you were created to do was to work. You go back to the garden, which didn't exist, by the way. Just thought I'd throw it in and see if you were listening. 
Garden of Eden. Um, the, the big debate in evangelical circles right now is if Adam and Eve were historical people. Do you ever read Christianity Today magazine? Do you ever read any of the journals? If you don't, that's okay. I mean, you're not a pastor, but, but I read them. Chuck reads them. You know, that's what we do. And it's really interesting that in evangelical circles right now, the big debate is, were Adam and Eve real historical people? Well, what did Psalm 119 say? The sum of thy word is what? Truth. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Well, you can, well they weren't literal. Well, you know, it kind of seems that they were. Why would you think they're not literal? I would ask to someone. Well, that's just, that's just, that's incredible. And you think evolution isn't? (laughs) And how do they get on Adam and Eve? I don't know, but I feel better. Yeah, thank you very much. Adam was given work to do in the garden. And when sin came into the world, Adam was cursed in his area of primary responsibility. Do you ever think about this? There were three curses when sin came into the world. There was a sin put on Satan. Uh, there was a curse put on Satan. There was a, there was a curse put on uh, the woman. Greatly shall your pain increase in childbearing. And there was a curse put on the man that in his work, he would now have to deal with thorns and thistles by the sweat of his brow. There were no thorns. There were no thistles. There were no brambles. He was going to work, but now he's going to work under the curse. But his job was to work and his job was to provide. We've gotten a long way away from that. The further you get away from Scripture, the more confused you become. Years ago, Mary showed me an article about uh, a couple that were driving in the mountains, the Sierra Mountains of Northern California, and a sudden, out of nowhere, a a blizzard hit. And they were off on some side road, and they had a small baby with them, their their newborn baby. And they got so bad that they went off into a ditch. They weren't even sure where they were. It was almost whiteout conditions. And uh, they, they were in deep trouble, only had a few crackers and some apple juice, and they were in the car for a couple of days. And then it was getting to the point where they weren't going to survive. And this was before cell phones and all of this kind of thing. And so what happened was the woman took the baby and put the baby uh, into the arms of the husband and made sure he was as secure and as safe as possible. And then the woman got out and hiked uh, 10 miles looking for help so that they could come in and rescue the family. Now, that's not what happened. You know why it's not what happened? Because that didn't make any sense. What happened was the guy made sure she was as comfortable as possible with the child, and then he hiked 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 miles to get help. You know why they did that? In fact, I read the article, and I thought, it's interesting how in crisis, when your life is at stake, people revert to their God-given roles. Do you know why he left her with the child? It was an issue of breast. This guy just woke up over here. 
breast. <laughs> Men and women both have breasts. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. But men and women have different kinds of breasts. Why would he go hike looking for help and leave her with that baby? Because she could feed that baby with her breast and he couldn't. Isn't that interesting? Or maybe you think that's boring. I just find it interesting. That in great crisis, with, with all of the stuff we hear in our culture, when push comes to shove and you've got a tragedy about to happen, what do we do? We revert to our God-given roles. Okay. Uh, the Titanic was a great tragedy. And back then, what did men do? They, the, the orchestra played Near My God to Thee. Everybody stayed at their appointed task Everybody acted with honor. They made sure the women and children, as many as they could get on, but, but see, they couldn't get them all on because there was such arrogance among the designers. This is the ship that God couldn't sink. I remember a few years ago reading uh, it, when, the, uh, when, the, uh, when the economy was just rolling. And there was a phrase for it, and it's, it's passing my mind. When that, when that whole technology thing was just blowing and going, you remember what I'm talking about. I remember reading some articles, and some of these, uh, these, these Silicon Valley startups that no longer exist. But these young kids, 24, 25, 26, 27, saying, this is a new paradigm. This is not going to, this will, this will never end. Well... Who was it that said, Hegel said, history teaches us that men never learn from history. Uh, economic cycles come and they go. And, and somebody's going to go down. That's just how it works. Um, but when you get away from God, you find yourself in big trouble. Yes, you do. But, but back then, there was enough of a Christian culture when the Titanic went down, that they made sure the women and the children got on. There was enough of a backbone, there was enough of an influence of Christianity that when push came to shove, women and children first. So Pastor John Harper gave his life, and that's why they named the church after him. He acted like a man. Dennis Rainey's written a new book called Stepping Up. It's a pretty good book. read it this week. Dennis says that, uh, I like what he says here. He says, uh, you look at a man's life, and there are really five large chapters of a man's life. Let me give them to you. The first one is boyhood. The second one is adolescence. The third one is manhood. The fourth one is um, mentoring. And the fifth one is what he calls patriarch. Very interesting. He's looking at the whole gamut of a man's life. If you go to Psalm 90, turn over there with me, if you would. Moses wrote Psalm 90. We've looked at this before in recent weeks. Verse 10. As for the days of our life. Now, now let me show you why that's interesting. As for the days of our life. Because he starts with the life of God. You see, to understand 
who you are as a man, to understand your purpose on the earth. It's a huge question for men. Why am I here? We ask that question throughout life at the different stages of life. Why am I here? Why am I alive? We're always as men, we're looking for meaning. We want to find meaning in life. We think meaning comes in getting a certain size house or a certain income or a a certain type of car, certain net worth. And what's interesting is if you've ever gotten that goal and you've achieved it, it's interesting because you get there and inevitably you find yourself saying, well, there's got to be something else. Because the satisfaction that I thought I would feel in attaining these goals, it's, um, it's very limited. And then you're on to the next one. What was the old thing that uh, someone said to, to, to the old man Rockefeller? Who was worth millions and millions and millions? How much would it take you to make, make you happy? He said, just another million? Just another million. Not quite there yet. I just need another million. You see? Uh, look at... Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The, the amazing thing about God is that God has no beginning and God has no end. I remember asking my dad when I was a little kid, where did God come from? My dad said, he's always been. Yeah, but where did he come from? And in my mind, I would go back as far as I could in my little mind, time-wise. Back, 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 back. Where did he come from? He's always been. But before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, he created it. He spoke it into existence. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's who God is is. It's called the aseity of God, the self-existence of God. God has no beginning. He has always been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's always been. The Christ who was born in the manger in Bethlehem created Bethlehem, created the stars, created the star that pointed them to him. It's amazing. That's God. Now, you get to us, verse 10. As for the days of our life, what are we talking about? We're talking small change. Are we not? Verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Their pride is but labor and sorrow. Soon it's gone, we fly away. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What's amazing, uh, did you see that little phrase there in 10? Soon it is gone. <laughs> is it not true the older you get, the faster life goes? When you're a kid, life is slow, is it not? I remember being, a, as a kid, I remember that, that period of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas morning was a good six months <laughs> when you're four or five years old. Doesn't it seem that way? Because you'd have Thanksgiving, and then they'd roll out the tree and the lights and all that, and you're just a little guy, and you're just so excited. But it took forever to get from Thanksgiving to December 25th. I mean forever. Did it not? How long does it take now? About three and a half days. The older we get, the faster life goes by. Life speeds up. It's just flying by, is it not? That is. 
As for the days of our lives, 70 if due to strength 80 years. So if you're 70, how much time do you think you got left? Once again, I'm just here to encourage you. So I'm in good shape. I work out. Great. How much time do you think you got? What do you think you got? 40 years? No. No, you're going to die, man. So you're not going to make it 40 years. If you're 70, probably not. What, do you think you got 30? Nah. You don't have 30. You want to live, you want to, live to be 100? Do you? I'm not sure I do. You live to be 100, you're going out in diapers. You came in in diapers, which you don't remember. You live to be 100, you're probably going out in diapers, which you probably won't remember. How much time do you think you got? Well, here, here's the answer. Not long. Not long. Do you? What are the five phases, Rainey says? Boyhood, then adolescence. So boyhood is just being a little boy, you know? Just, just being a little boy, and little boys are supposed to be little boys. Do crazy things. You got to watch them so they don't kill themselves. Just by being, you know, little boys climb up 40-foot oak trees and jump. Because they're little boys, you see. So you got boyhood, okay? Then you got adolescence. That's the teenage years, which we've invented over the last 100 years. You got adolescence. Uh, then you have manhood, and we've been talking uh, in this act like men thing about the fact that one of the problems in our society is that you've got a generation of young men coming up, once again I have to say not all of them, thank the Lord, but many of them, because of a lack of fathering connection, because of a lack of male connection in their lives, they're not sure what it means to be a man. And what they want to do is that they want to prolong adolescence, they want to, prolong, they want to live in perpetual spring break. They just want to have a good time. So what they're doing is they're attempting to prolong uh, adolescence and put off manhood. What is manhood? We've said there are five markers to manhood. You finish your education. This is the transition from adolescence to manhood. You finish your education. You get it done. Whatever it is, finish it. Just finish the sucker. You can go online and finish it in two weeks these days. You can even go to class. It's amazing. I was born before my time. It's just amazing to me the classes you can take online. Um, you sense bitterness? It's because it's there. <laughs> I missed all of that. Finish your education. Here's number two. Move out of the house. Just move out. Get out. Don't live with mommy and daddy if you're 27. Get out and be a man. Uh, get financially independent. Okay? Get married. Have kids. That is the progression to manhood. Boyhood, adolescence, manhood. And then what's interesting, you have kids, and you're raising your kids, and then before you know it, those kids are starting to graduate, and they're starting to leave the house, and suddenly you have this thing called the empty nest thing. You guys ever had the empty nest? Any of you guys? We had the empty nest. I, we read books on it. Mary and I talked about it. We tried to prepare about it because we heard about other couples that struggled so deeply. We read and read about the empty nest and Josh was our last one. He left, and three days after he left, Rachel called from California saying she was going to move back to get her master's here. We had the empty nest for three days. 
But we were ready for it. And we handled the transition wonderfully, those three days. We did all right. But we were kind of glad she was coming back and it worked out. It was kind of neat. But eventually, you have an empty nest, you see. Uh, And then when you get in that empty nest, the relationship with your kids change, or it should change. If you got a 30-year-old, you don't relate to them as you did when they were 13. That's not going to work. They're adults. You respect them. You're still a father, but they're adults. And we got to make room for that transition if you want to have a good relationship. You got to let them make decisions. You give counsel when it's appropriate, when you're asked, but you don't run their lives. First 20 years of a kid's life, you're making the decisions for them. From then on, they should be making the decisions. So it's got to be. Because you don't want to inhibit them from becoming who God wants them to be. Okay. And what happens then, you, then you move into the mentoring phase. The mentoring phase is, is where you're sort of a coach. It's where the older men teach the younger men. It's not, it's not raising a boy. You're talking about a young man, maybe in his 20s, maybe in his 30s. Hopefully you have that relationship with, with a son. As he's navigating, he'll call on you for wisdom. That's a great blessing when it happens. If that hasn't happened and there are issues between you and a son or you and a daughter, it's on you to go initiate and try to get things right. Know that. The last book of the Old Testament, you remember that? Malachi, the Italian prophet. (laughs) Flip over there if you would. We know it as Malachi, but the last words of the Old Testament. And when you get to to Malachi, and and then the Old Testament's done. And then in my Bible, it says New Testament. I turn the page and you have Matthew 1. But what we don't realize is between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. Isn't that interesting? If you were God and you weren't going to speak for 400 years, what would be the last thing you would leave people with? Here's what God said. Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. And if you look at Luke 1.17, you'll see that was a reference to John the Baptist. Okay? Metaphorically, he came back as Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. But verse 6 says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God wants fathers and kids, young kids and adult kids. He wants them, he wants fathers to be connected. He doesn't want there to be, he doesn't want there to be fissure. He doesn't want there to be brokenness. And if there is, I would say it's upon the mature one. I would say it's upon the older one to initiate, to try to heal the breach. This is where men cannot be passive. This is where men need to initiate. And as they're adults, you're into a mentoring relationship. So the mentoring relationship could kick in somewhere around 40, let's say, give or take, 45. How many of you guys are... 40, 45, over 40. Let me see your hands, if you can get them up. (laughs) Just a rotator cuff joke that I've told many times in here. Um, Okay, you're probably in that mentoring thing, in that mentoring phase. 
But then what happens is you start hitting 60. And you're in a new phase. You know what phase you're in? You're in the phase of the patriarch. You know what, you know what hit me a while back? The last time we had a family wedding and everybody came in and all the cousins were there. The last time that happened, which was about four weeks ago, you know what hit me? I'm the patriarch of my family. I am the oldest male in my extended family. It's kind of a shock. Because um, my dad went home to be with the Lord three years ago. It really never dawned on me that I was the patriarch. Because my dad was always the patriarch. You know? But now I'm the patriarch. That's a new role. And it's an interesting role. Because, let me tell you what that means. It means you're old. <laughs> and it means, I'll tell you what else it means. They think you're wise. Or can I say this? They should think you're wise. But, but see, you're just trying to get your arms around that you're 60 and 60. Because in your head, you're still some young buck out there, you know, shooting hoops. And you're not. We get miles on our tires, don't we? Isn't it interesting how we get old? I mean, you used to be a young guy, and you'd go shoot baskets, and you wouldn't even warm up. You wouldn't stretch. You didn't need to stretch. You'd never pulled a muscle in your life. You were a young guy. you just go out and play. you just go out and sprint. You didn't stretch. You didn't even know you had a groin. You knew you had a sexual organ, but you didn't know you had a groin. You didn't even know you could pull a groin. Remember the first time you ever pulled a groin? I remember I was gardening a guy in basketball at the Y. I'm, how old was I? I was 30, maybe 31. I'm gardening this guy at the YMCA in Redwood City. A bunch of us paid lunch in California. I'm gardening this guy, and he took a step here, and I went, <laughs> and I... And what is that called? It's called a growing or a growing. I didn't even know I had one. But boy, I knew then, and it took me almost six weeks to come back from that. And when I came back, I got out on there, and I was there two minutes, and I pulled it again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You remember the first time you pulled a hamstring? I do. I was 27. I was a youth pastor. And we were playing football. And I'm running a fly pattern against some 17-year-old kid that thought he was hot stuff, and I blew right by him. I'll never forget it. The pride and arrogance was flowing from my veins. <laughs> and I'm getting ready to catch this pass. And as I'm streaking past this kid and looking back for that ball, I suddenly felt something back here I'd never felt before in my life. First time I pulled a hamstring. Did I catch the ball? I never saw the ball. <laughs> My face was buried in the turf. I was weeping like a little girl on the Titanic. That hurt. That sucker hurt. We get older, don't we? Yeah, we do. And you hit your 60s and you're a patriarch. Your body's not the same, but you have the virtue of a lot of experience. Your body breaks down. You're getting miles on the tires. I got on an escalator the other day and pulled a hamstring. <laughs> it's very humbling. 
It happens. You young guys, you wait. You wait. It's coming. It's just part of life. Um, turn with me to Proverbs 4. This, this is, hey guys, this is how God has designed life. You go through these different roles, but see, here's the thing. As you go through them, you go from boyhood to adolescence, then you go into manhood. What's manhood about? Manhood's about being a leader. Manhood is about becoming a, a man of responsibility. You initiate. You do things that you don't want to do. You discipline yourself. Uh, how is it that you know how to become a man and know what, man, what men do? It's to be passed on from the older men. If, uh, if you go to Proverbs 4 and you're already there and I'm still turning to get there, if you look at Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 4, Hear, O sons, and you know that the book of Proverbs in the early chapters, he, it's a father talking to a son. It's a father teaching his son about life. This is the way it's supposed to be. Look at chapter 4. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Now watch this. Give attention that you may gain understanding. He's trying to get the son ready for what's coming. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. He is connected. This guy is intentional with his sons. If you've got a daughter, you're intentional with your daughter. Verse 3. When I, here's the father speaking. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. I was the only boy. I remember back when I was the only boy. I used to be a little boy. Now I'm a man. I used to be a little boy. He's talking to his boy. Tender and the only son of, in the sight of my mother. Then he taught me and said to me, who's he speaking of? He's speaking of his father, his son's grandfather. Then he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Here is the progression of life. The the. The father is teaching his son, letting his son know, I used to be a boy and my father taught me. Now maybe that's gone in your family. Maybe that hasn't been in your family for a generation or two or three. That may be and that's a tragedy. You put a new link in the generational chain. You get connected. You're, you're not doomed to repeat if, if your father ran off. You know what's interesting? I've known Dennis for 30 years. What I didn't know about Dennis, uh, Dennis's dad had a propane business in a gas station. And Dennis's dad was a pretty good semi-pro pitcher. In fact, Dennis's dad, everybody knew him, Dennis Rainey, everybody knew his dad as Hook. They called him Hook Rainey. You know why they called him Hook Rainey? Because he had a savage curveball. The sucker just hooked, just dropped. In fact, uh, Dennis's dad one time pitched against Dizzy Dean. And uh, Dennis asked him what the score of that game was, and his dad could never remember. That's a joke. <laughs> Obviously, he lost. But his dad had the ability and the giftedness to play Major League Ball, but because no one really mentored him in terms of throwing curveballs, he messed up his arm at a really young age and was done. 
What I didn't know, see, I knew about Dennis's dad. What I didn't know is that his dad was born in a log cabin. Dennis's dad. In the Ozark Mountains. And as a young boy, his dad took off and abandoned the family. I didn't know that. But see, Hook Rainey, did that impact him as a little boy to have his dad leave? Yeah. Did he do that to his wife and kids? No. He put a new link in the family chain. And worked so hard at it that he raised a boy who started family life, which ministers to men and husbands and wives all over the world. Isn't it interesting? You put a new link in the generational chain. You're not doomed to do what someone before you did. That's the good news of the gospel. Uh, on Proverbs 4, Ray Ortland has written these words. This is, this, what we just read is kind of hidden away in Proverbs. You see, the father is talking to his son, and as he's talking to him, he says, Son, I used to be a boy. And when I was a boy, my father taught me. You see this intergenerational thing. It's the Deuteronomy 6 thing. When they're going in to take the land. This is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me, Moses says, to teach you, so that you might do them in the land which you're going to possess, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord. Okay. I want to read this to you. Uh, Ray Ortland writes this about what we've just read in Proverbs 4. You guys still with me? Are you? How are the Rangers doing? Three to two? Good. Three to two what? Oh, you're just prophesying, huh? Okay. All right, good. Listen to this. See, because Proverbs 4 is talking about a tradition of a father teaching a son. And as the son teaches, as the father teaches the son, he tells him of the tradition in the family because he used to be a boy and his father taught him and he's passing on the tradition. Um, Ray Ortland says, what is tradition? Tradition is previous generations handing down to us something of their own. Our forefathers are not disqualified from speaking into our lives just by the accident of their death. In fact, they have an advantage over us. They fought the good fight, they finished the race, they kept the faith. Let's think just briefly and selectively about what we stand to gain from our tradition as Christians. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus, maybe 60 generations since Jesus walked the earth. If we figure about 33 years per generation... About 12 generations into this historical flow, along came a man named Augustine. He taught us that God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And Augustine did find that rest. About 32 generations into this flow, along came a man named Anselm. He taught us that until we come to Christ, we cannot know what a heavy weight sin is. And for Anselm, that weight was lifted away in Christ. About 45 generations into it, along came a man named Martin Luther. He taught us that God treats bad people like good people through the finished work of Christ on the cross, received with mere faith, and Luther entered into that grace. About 53 generations into it, along came a man named Jonathan Edwards. He taught us that real Christianity is a miracle, as God powerfully awakens dead hearts with new affections for Christ, and God gave that miracle to Edwards. About 59 generations into it, along came a man named Ray Ortland Sr. He taught me 
what a revival-ready church looks like. Ray Ortland is a pastor in Nashville. I remember sitting in Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena and hearing his dad preach. And usually once a week, Ray Ortland Jr., who I heard his dad preach, I check his son's blog, who is a professor at Wheaton Graduate School of Theology. Because that young man has got a lot of wisdom and a lot to say. It's to be passed on. I don't know where you guys are in life. I don't know what phase you're in. Um, it's not boyhood. It's not adolescence, as I look around. You're either in manhood or you're in mentoring. You either have kids at home under your roof. That's what I call manhood. You're being a husband, you're being a father. You're living a stress-free life. <laughs> Isn't it good? No, you got all kinds of stress. Why? Uh, because you're a husband and father. Yeah, you got all kinds of stress. Yeah. Uh, then you're going to go a phase, and there's going to be the empty nest, and your kids go out on their own, all that. Hey, some of you guys are there, and you're in the mentoring phase. Okay? You got kids transitioning. Uh, some of you are grandfathers, some of you are the patriarchs. See, wherever you are, you've got a leadership responsibility that God has called you to. Now, let me tell you what's interesting about this whole thing of leadership and God calling men to act like men in the particular chapter of life that you find yourself in. You know what's interesting? Is that when you start taking this stuff seriously, wait a minute, God's called me to lead. God has called me to not be a, a self-centered narcissist who's looking out for, take, for just take, looking out for number one. God's called me to do something significant. He's called me to protect. He's called me to provide. He's called me to instruct. He's called me to be connected. And he has. We, we got a world that's fallen apart. A lot of guys struggle with significance. A lot of guys struggle with lack of meaning. You want significance? You want lack of meaning? You take this on. You get serious about your role as a spiritual leader in your family. Don't leave it to your wife. Well, she knows, she reads all these Christian books. She, she knows more verses than I do. She may know more verses. It's not how many verses you know, it's how many you obey. It's obedience. It's following Christ. It's loving Christ. You start where you are. You say, Jesus, I want you to be first in my life. I want to follow you today. And, and, and you watch over your heart. You guard your heart. You get that coffee, you get in the word of God before you go to work. Or you're, you know, you got to go early, whatever. You put John 6 in your Bluetooth, in your molar, and listen to it from your eyeball. I don't know what you do. <laughs> you can do anything. You download it into your ventricle, your aorta. They, they, you can do anything. But you put the word of God in your heart. You, Lord, help me today as I go live. Give me your wisdom. I want to be your guy. I don't want to live like everybody else. I want to follow Christ. Help me to work on my character. Help me to trust you. I don't like this stuff, but help me to trust you. And what happens is, when you start doing that, know this. you got an enemy who's going to come after you, and he's going to try and neutralize you and keep you from leading, and he's going to try and discourage you. Just know it. One of the ways the enemy discourages us from stepping up to leadership, wherever you are in life, one of the ways he does it is by bringing up our failures and our sins. Who are you to be a leader? 
Who are you to lead? Look at what you've done. Look at all the mistakes. Look at, look at your past life. Look at your sexual history. Who are you to talk about sexual purity to grandkids? This is how he works. He's the accuser of the brethren. And a lot of times we think, here's what happens. When, when you decide, I want to step up and take this leadership mantle as God shows me how to do it, as you step up, he's going to try and discourage you from doing it by bringing up your failures. I've had guys say to me over the years, you know, I, 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 I would like to be used by God, but I can't be used by God. Well, why can't you be used by God? Man, I was, I've been in so many affairs, and I've been in porn for this long and all this, and, and, and I'm trying to follow the Lord, and I'm, I'm just growing now in my faith, but man, I, I wish I could be used by God. Well, why can't you be used by God? Well, I had this adulterous affair back then, and this, and this, and this, and this. Okay. Uh, I'm a failure. All right, so you think because of all those failings, you can never be used by God. Exactly. All right, I have a question for you. You think you can't be used by God because you're a failure. Let me ask you a question. Who else does God have to choose from? Bunch of failures. Every guy in here has failed. We don't fail in the same way, but we're failures. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now look, at, i got three minutes left, and I'm going to go at least 13 more minutes. Okay? I'm going to do it. If you need to leave, that's fine. I understand. But i got to do this. I want you to turn with me very quickly to 2 Kings 21. I want to show you a guy who was the, wicked, the most wicked king in the history of Judah. And whenever you start thinking that God cannot use you because of your past and because of your failures, you need to remember this guy by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh, as I said, was the worst king in the history of Judah. His father was a godly man by the name of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 21 is where we're going, and I'm going to read this very quickly. This guy knew the truth, he was raised in the truth, and he abandoned the truth. <clears throat> Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, 2 Kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He was a co-ruler with his dad. They would apprentice their son. So the father was still alive, probably uh, put his son on the throne with him, was teaching him the ropes. Okay? We don't know how long that lasted before the father died, but it was probably what occurred. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. You know what that means? The abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the, the sons of Israel were the Canaanite nations. When Joshua went in and they went in to take the promised land, there were all these ites in the land. They were highly advanced, technological people every day, but they gloried in sexual deviancy. They were shot through with, uh, uh, with uh, sexually transmitted diseases. You had babies born blind. You had babies born with all kinds of issues because of the rampant sexual immorality, and anything went, anything went. You read through the Old Testament, you read through Leviticus, and some of the, the, uh, the law codes, don't have sex with animals, don't do this, don't do this. Why? That's what they did, the Canaanites. You know, you read in Leviticus, you don't uncover your mother's nakedness, you don't uncover your sister's nakedness, you don't have incest. Why? Because that's what the Canaanites were doing. And God dispossessed them. Now note this. It says that Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal. 
and made an Asherah. Baal was a, was a filthy, sexual, deviant religion. They worshipped sex. Baal was a mythological god. Baal killed, uh, castrated and killed his own father. Uh, Baal had two wives who were his sisters. There's incest, and that's about as far as we can talk about. Filthy. What did this guy do? His dad had torn down the altars to Baal. He put them back up, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He built altars for all the hosts of the heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. Uh, there is a, a, a pretty strong tradition that he took a phallic symbol, a human erect penis, and put that in the Holy of Holies. Is that bad enough for you? Look at verse 6. He made his son pass through the fire. His firstborn son was burned alive in worship of Baal Moloch. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, uh, divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Uh, verse 7 talks about what the phallic symbol I mentioned. Um, Verse 10, the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh of Judah has done these things, and you can read through it, I, I, God's going to send judgment. Look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. There is a, another strong tradition that it was Manasseh who took the prophet Isaiah, put him in a hollowed-out log, and had him sawn in two. He killed the prophets. Uh, verse 17, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son became king in his place. That's Manasseh. You guys remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey did the news, but then in the afternoon on WBAP, he had a program called The Rest of the Story. And you're driving down the road, and suddenly Paul Harvey comes on. Everybody knew who he was. They didn't even introduce him. He just came on. Your radio didn't even have to be on. <laughs> he would come on. He was Paul Harvey. And he began telling this story. And in about 15 seconds, he's got you hooked. And it's all you can do to keep from going into a ditch off LBJ because you're just mesmerized with Paul Harvey, the story he's telling you. And then he gets to this critical, critical point and you're just about, the tension is just unbelievable in the car and the suspense and all of a sudden Paul Harvey will say, and in a moment, the rest of the story. And there's no way you're turning off that radio. You're going to listen for 60 seconds while Paul Harvey, Paul Harvey talks about true value hardware. <laughs> Aren't you? You're not going anywhere. You're listening to the whole commercial. In fact, you're on your way to True Value Hardware. <laughs> if Paul Harvey were reading this, he'd say, and in a moment, the rest of the story. Second Chronicles 33. Flip over to your right. It appears here that Manasseh did all these terrible things, horrible, horrible, horrible things, and then he died a... Pretty comfortable death at an old age. Get the rest of the story in 33 of Second Chronicles. Manasseh was 12 years old, verse 1, when he became king, reigned 55 years. It's pretty much the same all the way down 
to verse 9, what we just read. But then you get to verse 10, and it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. When someone who knows the truth continues in habitual sin, God speaks to them and God convicts them, but he refused to listen. And God will speak again and convict and convict and convict and convict. But he refused. He refused. He refused. Verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. They captured Manasseh with hooks. They put a hook through his nose. Bound him with bronze chains, and they took him to Babylon. According to Flavius Josephus, he was in a Babylonian dungeon for 12 years. And he still wouldn't repent. But something happened. And one day, verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, suddenly he broke. He broke before Almighty God in that Babylonian dungeon. See, this is what's called genuine repentance. There's genuine repentance and there's counterfeit repentance. There's genuine repentance, there's synthetic. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor, said, genuine repentance is the vomiting of the soul. We see a lot of repentance synthetic repentance when a politician gets caught in something, he's denied, 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 and then the evidence is irrefutable. And then suddenly he's repentant. He, I'm sorry. But it rings hollow because he's sorry he got caught. He's not sorry for what he did. We've seen this. You see it in little kids. Uh, Watson said, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. You heave up everything on your stomach, and then you keep heaving. And you can't stop. That's horrific. That's genuine repentance. You heave up your own sin. There's remorse. If you, could, if you had it to do over again, you wouldn't do it. You hate it. You despise it. You loathe it. That, and, and when someone is genuinely repentant, and there's a godly sorrow, you can read it, can't you? This guy was genuinely repentant. Watch this, verse 13. When he prayed to him, when he prayed to God, he was, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. God forgave him. God forgave him. Is that not amazing? He was forgiven. That's amazing grace. I remember the first time I read this. Oh, this is an amazing story. And then I read the next line and I got mad. Why would I get mad? When he prayed to him, he was moved. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. Right? He was forgiven. Great. And brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. God made him king. Again. I remember reading that. And you know what? That hacked me off. Okay, forgive the guy. I mean, forgive him, but don't put him back. As king. Well, that's what God did. And if you read the rest of the passage... Do you know what you see here? You see a description of a guy who had failed beyond any man in this room. And you know what he did at a certain point in his life? He stepped back up to leadership. And he began to repair as best he could everything he had done wrong for years and years and years. That's amazing to me. Is it not? So when you start getting accused by the enemy as you try to step up 
and be the man in your family that God would have you to be. And all of these things come in flooding through the gates of your past and your past sins and failures. And, you know, you want your kids to have a godly marriage. Well, man, I've, had, I've been married three times, okay? But then I came to know the Lord and I'm on my fourth marriage. And we're trying to build a Christian home here. Great, great. See, this is where when you, when you mentor... This is where when you talk, if, if, if you catch a son in pornography, by the way, talk to him before you think he's going to see pornography because he's probably already seen it. And when you talk to him and say, man, I couldn't do that. Yeah, you could do it. You don't want to, but you need to. Everybody else wants to talk with him. You take the step and talk to him. And when you talk to him, tell him when you failed. Because, see, they don't think you failed. See, you know you're a failure. They don't know that. They see you, and they think you, you hung the world. You see what I'm saying? You're authentic. You're real. It's just like Proverbs 4. Hey, I used to be a boy. I used to be a young man. Let me tell you what I had to learn the hard way. If you listen to me, maybe you can avoid some of this stuff. You guys, you guys see what I'm talking about? See, that's stepping up. That's, that's taking initiative. And that's coaching. That's mentoring. That's being a patriarch. It's overcoming the fear of your past mistakes, being disqualified by what you've done in the past and realizing who you are in Christ. And from this day forward, forgetting what lies behind, you, you press on. You're following Christ. Maybe you didn't for years, but you are now. Is this ringing true? We're not talking about your wife doing this. We're talking about you doing it. God wants men to step up, no matter where you are. And by the grace and mercy of Christ, you can do it. One of the most remarkable biographies I ever read in my life was John Newton. I've read his biography in three, three different biographers. One of the greatest reprobates ever to live. Sexual deviant. Had sex with so many slave women on those ships that he ran, he, he couldn't count them. Probably carried... I mean, I, I th- just by sheer odds, he probably had venereal disease himself. Even after he came to know Christ and he was a pastor, it was, it was John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. My gosh. That saved a what like me? He, couldn't, he never got over it. And all through his life, two things. If you would see him on the street, you would say, how are you, Pastor Newton? He would say, I am just as God would have me. I like that. I am just as God would have me. The other thing he said all of his life was, I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. You know that his greatest ministry was not being a pastor, was writing letters to those who were discouraged. And those who felt they could never be forgiven and used by God. He wrote volumes of letters. You can buy his volumes today. You know what he did? In adolescence, he was hell on wheels. He became a man. Never had children of his own, but took in children. Became a mentor. Became a patriarch. God used him. In spite of the accusations. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We would like to be used as well. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that takes away our sin. We thank you that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Old things, all things have become new.
Help us to live on that truth. Help us to get to work. Doing what you've called us to do in the sphere in which you have placed us. We want to be godly men. We want to act like men. Give us grace to do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.